This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I, I am very excited. Someone is back with us who blew my mind back in January when she was first on this show. Uh, Seven Bremner is got to be one of the most knowledgeable alchemists that I have ever encountered. I'm very careful about people I have on this show regarding alchemy because so many, so much of it is just bunk. There are a few real alchemists in the world. I'm privileged to know two of them, Prince Stash Rolla, who has been on the show, and Seven Bremner, who is also the real deal. Uh, her new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, is an absolutely a work of genius. And I know she's probably going to be embarrassed hearing me say that, but it's true. I'm going to try my best to do this justice today. And it's going to be hard because uh, this is an exceptional person. I, and as I say, I know very enough about alchemy to know when I'm I'm face to face with the real deal. And you're looking at the real deal right now. Seven Bremner was on Dreamland on um, January the 23rd of this year. And she has come back with an extraordinary new book, uh, The Marriage of uh, Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, which is basically a book about these energies and how they fit in, how they project into the world. And in the third half part of the show, the last half hour, we're going to get into the, uh, the, the some of the material about projecting the astral body, opening the doors to the imaginal realm and creating in the imaginal realm. Seven is an incredibly accomplished artist that I think in my opinion, the most accomplished alchemical artist working in the world today and self-taught. She just sat down and taught herself how to paint. I, I'm just in awe. Okay, we're going to start with an invocation. This invocation was given to me by my wife, Anne, about six months ago, and we use it every day in the sensing exercise, which we do at one o'clock on... Um, on uh, every afternoon at one o'clock Pacific time. And you're always welcome to join. If, you, if you're interested, just write Whitley at Strieber.com and it's free. Um, and you can come in and see if it's for you. And if it is, you can just stay with us. We're there every day, a group of us. Okay, here's the invocation. We ask the light to open the doors of our hearts and the dark to open the doors of our minds that we may receive richness of being from the light and richness of knowledge from the dark. We ask those wiser than us to protect us and help us to see, balance, and use what is given to us. And today, we are going to be talking about the light and the dark in some very deep and complex ways. I'd like to begin, Seven, by asking you if you can uh, discuss the hidden power of the arts in general, because I'll give you an example. It's not mentioned in your book, but another of his paintings is uh, Franz Stuck, 
uh, he will talk in a few minutes about a painting of his called Sin. But to give folks the an idea of just how powerful art can be, and I'm including in this uh, verbal as well as visual art, all forms of art. Franz Stuck painted something called uh, The Wild Hunt in 1898, which hangs in to this day in the State Museum of Art in Munich. This painting was seen by Adolf Hitler and it was inspired, it inspired Adolf Hitler as the painting of the painting of Wotan racing through the world in, in, a, in a frenzy of destruction. And he modeled himself on the painting. He changed his look. That brush mustache, the Rotbrems, it's called, the little mustache that he had, and his hair uh, uh, parted in a certain way that was such a distinctive thing. If you look at that painting, you see it. He modeled himself on Wotan in the act of ultimate destruction and then enacted this in the world with the result that over a hundred million lives were lost from that. Now, you think art isn't relevant? Doesn't matter, it's just something on the wall. Seven, can you give us some ideas about the meaning, the power of art? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Very humbling, thank you. Um, yeah, the power of art, I think, is really, it lies in the image and the symbol and the ability of images to speak to a part of us that's not rational. Um, that is much deeper than the rational mind and that doesn't need to understand things in words necessarily. And that calls upon the mythic within us that incites the mythic narrative within us like it did for Hitler in your example. And what a wonderful and terrible example yeah. um, of the power of art to affect people on a deep level. And there's something about imagery you know, being able to create the illusion of another world within an image, to create something from nothing, to create something that wasn't there before through a painting or a piece of art. And the way that that stimulates the imagination in other people and awakens things within them uh, for better or worse. And hopefully if the art is coming from a place of inner realization, it has the power to uplift and enlighten people and guide them um, towards a deeper truth within themselves. And yet there's also the need for art to play a sort of cathartic role for artists, you know, to express the darkness and express the violence that's within them in a way that's um, more constructive than actually living that out in real life. So there, that's what that uh, Stuck painting makes me think of. There's a painting in Vienna that you mentioned. I, I just saw it face to face a few months ago. I was in Vienna. It's called, it's by Gustav Klimt, and it's called, I believe, Hope One. Mm. Hope, yeah. Uh, it is a painting of a, of a beautiful painting of a pregnant woman 
on one side and death on the other. Can you tell us a little bit about the power of a painting like that when you as a woman see it? Hmm. Hold on, I'm just gonna get it in front of me so I can speak a little more. Sure, no hurry, we'll, we'll wait. Go ahead and get yeah. it right in front of you. All right. This one, yeah, this one has such a beautiful range of imagery, you know, with these sort of ghostly, ghastly faces in the background and this dark background, and then this beautiful, gorgeous pregnant woman with flowing hair, and it looks like water kind of flowing down next to her, and um, life and death are just very much portrayed in the balance here. And I always think of, um, birth and death as pretty much happening at the same time you know when new life comes into the world there is a certain death that happens in that moment as well and when we die that's also a moment of birth and transformation and moving into a new phase of our existence um so i think when i look at this painting that's what it makes me think of is that um, union of life and death together in one and the beauty of that I think the exactly that the link between birth and death, which you discuss in the book, um, is very important energetically, uh, and and a little, uh, I, it's almost a prayer. It's an invocation. Uh, receive the richness of being from the light and the richness of knowledge from the dark, and knowledge is not knowledge always in some way knowledge of death. Uh, all knowledge, because knowledge is about endings. It's about finding something final. You know, we we, we look in 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 uh, uh, in physics constantly for the theory of everything, and I've thought maybe we'll find the theory of everything on the day the world ends. <laughs> so, uh, when you work. And I think you're. You, I don't think you do actual alch alchemical transformations in, in a in a in a in a laboratory, do you? You work basically with your paintings. Yeah, I apply the alchemical principles through the creative process. Yeah. Yeah, but I have you know studied a little bit of the practical alchemy. I just decided at a certain point that that wasn't necessarily for me at this point in my life. Yeah, well, I understand that. Stashtarolos is the same way. He, he works in, um, he does his alchemy in the mind. And folks, you should understand this. If this is really powerful stuff, but it doesn't, you don't need to get a lab and have retorts and things. And if you were me, of course, it would all explode. But, uh, and that's <laughs> liable to happen to practically anybody, goodness knows. And it happened to plenty of alchemists in the past. It was debased by alchemy, just to go at a little history, was debased by a, um, a false claim that it was possible to turn lead into gold using these transformations, physical lead into physical gold. And a lot of arist aristocrats and royals in Europe in the, I guess, 17th and perhaps into the 18th century were sold a bill of goods by fake alchemists who pretended that they would be able to do this. Can you talk a little bit about the history of alchemy and, and where it 
comes from because it goes back much farther, doesn't it? All the way to ancient Egypt. It does. It goes back all the way to ancient Egypt and arguably to the beginning of humans working with fire and being able to transmute material. And if we think about agriculture, you can see that in an alchemical sense, um, transmuting the earth and generating things out of the darkness of the earth. So, but alchemy as an art does go back to ancient Egypt and then it developed over the centuries um, through the ancient Greeks and the Arabic alchemists and then into the Renaissance and um, through the Middle Ages as well. And, you know, it's been a continuous line from ancient times and it's gone through many different transformations. And most recently it kind of went into um, more of a spiritual conception of what alchemy is. And that happened in the 19th century um, where alchemy was seen less as a material art and just solely something that happens on the spiritual level or metaphorical level. Um, but truly it's always been both and it still is both. And there's plenty of practicing alchemists today that work in the laboratory. Um, and I think to me, the true art of alchemy is the ability to experience it um, both internally and externally in some form. So whether that's in a laboratory that you're watching transmutations of different minerals or plant materials um, and reflecting that inwardly, having that experienced inwardly as well as you're watching these things unfold within your retort, or if you're doing this in your art studio, or perhaps you're just working with the physical body and transmutations within the physical body. And that's sort of like Taoist alchemy, um, working with the energy of the body as well. You do that also, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Where did you, where did alchemy, how did alchemy come into your life? Um, well, in my early 20s, I was studying polarity therapy, which is a hands-on modality, healing modality that works with a person's life force energy, what we would call prana or chi, and using both hands as a positive and negative um, charge essentially to guide that energy and open up blockages. And a lot of it is based in hermetic principles. And um, that was sort of my first introduction to hermetic ideas and also my first introduction to alchemy through my teacher, um, Dr. Leslie Korn. And she had written a book uh, called Somatic Empathy, just a little book, but um, there's a section in there about the caduceus of Hermes and a picture um, of Mercurius, and you might be familiar with it. It's an old engraving where Mercurius is standing there nude upon um, a winged sphere, I think, and he's holding two caduceuses in each hand. And then there's two sort of challenging alchemist figures coming towards him. Um, but I saw this image and it triggered something in me. It was like a memory or just a, a deep feeling of familiarity with the image and also an intense burning curiosity to understand uh, where it came from and what it meant. And that's that was a pretty pivotal moment in my exploration of alchemy. And from there, things just kind of fell into place. Like people would give me books or I would come into information. Um, and I started first reading um, Carl Jung's take on alchemy from a psychological perspective. So his books, Psychology and Alchemy and Alchemical Studies were really important in the beginning. 
and later on Mysterium Conjunctionis. Um, and from there I became interested in, you know, reading actual alchemical texts and especially the ones with um, illustrations, you know, like Michael, Michael Myers' Atalanta Fugians is a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great book. And the illustrations are very powerful. Why are they so powerful? Because if you look at them, in fact, if I look at your work, uh, it, it intellectually, in my mind, it makes no sense. Where does it make sense? Why do I want so badly to look at this stuff? And why did it change me? I think because it is irrational and because it doesn't make sense, it creates a question within us because the rational mind wants to understand, you know, wants there to be a story, a narrative, and yeah. maybe you can tease one out, um, but it can always change. And that's, I think, the beauty of alchemical art is that these symbols are multivalent. They're not necessarily fixed. Um, and they can mean one thing and they can also mean another thing or many things. So if you look at an alchemical image, there's any number of interpretations that you can make um, and yet usually when they're accompanied by alchemical text or alchemical recipes, um, that kind of gives you the context for what the image means. But usually when you read that text, it has very little to do with the image. And so then you're left even more confused because <laughs> you expect exactly. the text to explain the image and it really doesn't. Um, my um, my wife, you know, I wish I had understood the depths of my wife's mastery when she was alive, but only after she died and returned with such extraordinary material did I understand. And I and I, as I looked back across her life, I realized that this mastery had been there for a long time. And one of the things she said is, I've said it on this show before, but it cannot be said enough. And it's germane to precisely what you're saying, because it's about energy. It is. The human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And this is the essence of the alchemical energy, I think, that it, it doesn't, it can't be figured out. It can't be rationalized. It has to be absorbed in another way. And uh, that is to say, we have to learn how to get the richness of knowledge from the dark that is within us and without us. And this is the very essence of the alchemical journey. Speaking of journeys, we're going to take a little break for the free side of the show and we'll be right back. We're talking to Seven Bremner, her website, marlena7bremner.com, and I urge you to go there. And if you do nothing else, simply sit and let the paintings just wash over you one after another in the, and on the splash page of this magnificent website. Uh, it is very powerful stuff. And especially if you can let go of, what does that mean? What is this? What is that? Just let it go. And all of a sudden, something real 
and quite new comes to you from those paintings. I'm doing it as I'm talking, and that's why I'm so concentrated because I'm letting this these brilliant works of art just kind of take me wherever they want to. Oh gosh, this is fun. I'm back now. I, I got completely absorbed in your website. Merlina7bremner.com. Don't miss it. Uh, and the books, uh, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy uh, is uh, the, the newest one. And it is very, very powerful stuff because the interesting thing is there is a place for the intellect in all of this. And, and, and can you tell us how the intellect is used? Because this is it's a book of the a work of the mind. It's an intellectual book. How does the intellect come into alchemy? Well, alchemy, I see as an art of union, and it's the union between the rational and the irrational, the conscious and the unconscious, the outer and the inner. So while we can say, you know, alchemical images and writing works upon the unconscious or that deeper part of us, the darkness within us, uh, we do need that intellectual, rational part of ourselves to kind of put the pieces together and to integrate them. So we need to be able to go into those nonlinear states of mind, um, intuitive, irrational kind of places to be able to absorb uh, what alchemy has to teach us. But then in order to make sense of it and to integrate it into our lives, that's where the intellect comes in. And in alchemy, these two sides of our being were often expressed as the king and the queen, or soul and luna, the sun and the moon, or sulfur and mercury. So this sort of active part of ourselves, the rational, the outer, um, egoic side of ourselves, perhaps even, and then the unconscious, deeper uh, part of ourselves that relies more on symbols and intuition and dreams. And um, both of these are completely necessary to our being. And in our modern culture, there's so much more of an emphasis on the external, on the conscious, on the rational. And um, the world of the imagination and of dreams and the inner world is sort of still you know, looked down upon in a certain way as being unreal or unreliable and not that important, you know. Um, there aren't that many people that actually pay attention to their dreams, for instance, you know. It's just sort of seen as this like jumble of images that we came across the day before, recombined and not that important. Um, so, I think the emphasis in this book is contacting that unconscious part of ourselves or the lunar part of ourselves um, that sees the world in a symbolic way because that's what's lacking in this, in this time period. You know, there's a very interesting book out called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McKittrick. Uh, it's, he is a neurologist and the thesis of this book is that the emissary, that is to say, the left brain, has taken over the role of the master, the right brain. And the book is titled after a story of, or a parable, I should say, by Frederick Nietzsche. The master is the, um, 
rules a beautiful kingdom that's in a state of wonderful balance. And he gradually increases the borders of his kingdom. That is to say, he brings more and more knowledge into the balance of the mind. The emissary is sent out into the edges of the kingdom because it's now so big that the master can't control it all from from his his capital and uh, the emissary decides that he actually is better than the master and that he decides to control the kingdom instead and his control over the kingdom is very rigid it is very demanding very disciplined very unyielding uh, very logical and he gradually he assembles an army and he overcomes the master completely and pushes the master aside. And the result is the whole kingdom collapses. Right now in the world, our kingdom, you're, you're in, in it now. In fact, in this heat zone, uh, the planet's energies are disrupted profoundly. And they are disrupted by the actions of the emissary in the world, making more and more material, runaway ego. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do, Seven? <laughs> where, where do we go from here? Tell us a little bit about the master, because I know you know the master very well. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially regarding AI and in just the state of the world in general and this sort of eagerness and runaway train that we seem to be on. Um, you know, the need to know what's gonna happen, the need to find out and the inability to just slow down and sit with what is and to contemplate and to consider things. I think we've really lost that especially in our, our leadership. Um, and I think it's so crucial, especially with such powerful technology as AI, you know, to be able to slow down and ask ourselves like, you know, why are we doing this? And what are we hoping to get out of this? And, you know, maybe we could try to see where this is gonna go in five to 10 years and um, just consider that and just, you know, why, why such a hurry? You know, what's the rush? But I also feel like um, this time period that we're in is very much like the first stage of the alchemical opus, the Negredo, which is the blackening. My next question was going to be about the Negredo, but you've gotten there already. Go ahead. Yeah. And so we're in this sort of um, place of very intense Saturnian pressure and heat, you know, the fire of calcination, the fire of the crucible. Is an when aspect. you say Saturnian, exactly what do you mean? Relating to the planet Saturn specifically. So Saturn is traditionally thought of as being cold and dry and um, embodied by the, the god Saturn or Cronus in Greek mythology. And so this kind of stern father. And if you know the mythology of Saturn, he um, there's a prophecy that one of his children will overthrow him and take over the throne. So he decides he's going to devour each one of his children as they're born. And uh, this sort of fear-based mindset is very Saturnian and very much related to the Negredo. And um, what happens, of course, is uh, his wife 
Hera um, hides the final child who is Zeus or Jupiter. And then Jupiter comes back and avenges um, his siblings and, you know, is able to cause Zeus to vomit up the siblings. And anyway, um, Saturn relates to this idea of structure and limitation and constriction and pressure. And also like it can relate to depression and melancholy and fear, anxiety, um, hopelessness. And in alchemy, this period, the Nicredo, which is defined by these dark moods, um, is the beginning of the work. And even though it relates to death, it's the beginning. Now that is so interesting because we are looking at we're face to face with the Negredo in mm -hmm. the world now, and not just in the United States, but all over the world. But in the United States, it's reflected in things like our very nihilistic pol political situation. We have a lot of nihilism and death-related symbolism and imagery in, in politics and sort of it, the two extremes make the loudest noise one of them uh wanting to completely break down the, the the borders of sexuality the other one wanting to build a, a wall in in the same place and they're in conflict with each other and this conflict is going to lead to chaos political chaos but its essence is and I know that will happen because it's so powerful because its essence is sexual energy. And this is a, the great energy of the universe. Mm -hmm. When you make love, it's there's a reason that the French call the climax the little death. And that gets back to Klimt's painting, death and birth all together and it explains i think very clearly the inner meaning of the negredo but how do we live through what we're going to be facing where do we the those who are adept find the energy we need now i think slowing down slowing down creating space allowing a deeper wisdom to fill that space. And the Negredo is really part of that process. You know, it, it is that difficulty in our lives that breaks us down and humbles us to where we have nothing left to do but just surrender. And in that surrender, a space opens up and then a sort of grace can enter and fill you. And then there's a renewal and a regeneration of energy. And when I think about the extremes of the polarities that our political system is um, being pulled to right now and alchemical images of like two dogs or two lions fighting or, you know, uh, yeah, usually there's two animals that are fighting, right? And they generally end up devouring each other and even though they're both being devoured, there's a great medicine that issues forth from this process. And I think that's kind of where we're at as a culture. We need to be able to um, 
bring these opposites together. And sometimes there's a sort of violence that is a part of that in alchemical imagery. And I don't know what that means on a collective level, but um, I think the conflict will come to a head and the solution will come forth from that. But as so long as we are alienating the other and generally as a culture and as a people um, accepting that, you know, it's okay to otherize people and to say, that's the enemy. Those are the bad people. We're on the good side. We know what's right. We're not going to figure it out. We're not going to figure it out. We're going to take another little break right now. And when we come back, seven is going to figure it out. So get ready. <laughs> we'll be right back. We're talking to Seven Bremner, her new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. Her website, merlenasevenbremner.com. Uh, do not miss this website. It is it's of itself an alchemical journey, and uh, or rather a journey into real alchemical energy. And the book is even more so because it enables you to join intellect, with the inner power of your being in some very extraordinary ways. And it, you, because when you have understanding, you bring something more of yourself to the story. And this book offers real understanding. It's, it's the genuine article. All right, here we are. How do we, and you can tell, I think, that I'm, what I'm doing here is taking an alchemical journey in, in the world of the society. So we're, in, we're at the moment of Negredo. And now, what do we do to next? What is the next step in alchemy after you have, a, you, you reach Negredo, then what? Well, when you're in the Negredo, it can feel like it's never going to end. You know, it can just feel like the forces of the elements are assailing you and assailing your mind, you know, with um, anxiety and fears and worries and depression or just um, apathy even, you know. Um, well, apathy is the... Is the uh this the byword of this era that's why people are so they you know they are apathetic they're incredibly apathetic here you have a situation where the planets uh in the environment is clearly collapsing around our ears and you know they talk about it on the news like it was a news story just another news story but it's not another news story it's a new life beginning and a new death and a death unfolding as well. So, in the in the um, in the uh, transformations of alchemy, we go from we go we start with Negredo and we go to um, what's the next one? Uh, um, Albedo. Al yeah. Okay, that's right. See, you're the alchemist. I'm, I'm only here asking questions. Uh, tell us about albedo and what it is. Well, the albedo, if we can surrender 
if we can um, surrender to the negredo and accept it and stop fighting against it or trying to escape it, then that's when that sort of grace comes in or a light on the horizon. So if the negredo is the dark night of the soul, the albedo is that first glimmer of light that's that lets you know that the night is coming to an end, that it's not gonna last forever. And it opens up new possibilities and where um, Saturn is very constrictive and earthy and the negredo is very constrictive and earthy and cold and dry. The albedo is a more lunar process and also more related to Jupiter as this sort of um, liberating force that comes in and frees us from that um, constraint. And if we think about the moon and water and the unconscious and this sort of fluid reality where the inner and the outer worlds merge together and symbols take on a very potent meaning. And um, we may be more receptive to messages from um, spiritual beings or from our own unconscious. Um, it's a more open, fluid state of receptivity. And with that, um, all of the sort of structures and restrictions and limiting beliefs that we may have been confronting in the previous phase and feeling very, um, you know, burdened by, these can suddenly start to be dissolved and broken down and purified. So if we think about this just in terms of like our core beliefs or limiting beliefs, um, this is the time when we're sort of like letting them go and saying, I wanna build something new. And so like, what's wrong with that limiting belief that I was holding? Why, why doesn't it work anymore? And how is it holding me back? And kind of um, looking at things in a deeper way and allowing a sort of divine illumination to guide us into restructuring these beliefs and mental constructs that we have about ourselves and about the world, um, about the way things are supposed to be and what's possible. So the albedo is a really beautiful time, um, beautiful phase of the process. It can be very inspired, um, also very surreal. And there's also the possibility that in this stage of the process, one kind of goes a little too far into that great sea of the unconscious and loses their connection to dry land. And so I talk about this a lot in the book because I think it's important um, that we wanna be able to go into these fluid states of awareness to receive inspiration, but we need to be able to stay grounded. And I think having some sort of physical practice, whether that's um, a physical practice with the body or meditation or um, artwork or whatever it is that connects you to this consensus reality, you know, to have something like that, um, that you can always come back to. You know, it's very interesting that working with who I work with, and I have to say, I don't know who I work with, just that they're here uh, because they, they, there are so many manifestations, physical manifestations, and I don't actually know who it is. I can't name them. It could be my, it could be Anne. It could all be Anne for all I know. It could all be someone, something else. But in any case, it has been very, very interested in things like walking meditations lately 
I got to I actually, you know, I'm I'm no cameraman. I'm horrible with any kind of machine, but I got a GoPro camera for the purpose of doing walking and recording walking meditations. And uh, there are beautiful places to do that around here where I live. And let me ask you this. What about meditation as a practice of as as we uh, uh, as we try to draw albedo into our personal lives, which is what we have to do in order to survive what's going to happen here, because this place is going to go bonkers in the next few years. You're, you're liable to have even in the Western world things like food anxiety. And, you know, you think things are crazy now. You 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 deprive a, a, a society armed to the teeth, which ours is, of food, and you're going to see crazy like you never saw crazy before. So, these are serious times, and we need to under those of us who are on this path need to understand when we're really up against it. What do we? How do we open ourselves in the right way? And so, how do we find albedo under the most dark of circumstances? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right on the mark there with meditation. We need a way to create that space within ourselves to allow for greater possibilities to exist. If we can't get away from the noise and the constant distraction, um, we're not going to be able to hear that voice of wisdom that exists within all of us. Whether that comes to us in the form of a, a spiritual being or someone from, you know, beyond this life um, or just a voice within us or in the messages of birds or in a dream, however that comes to us, um, we need to be listening for it, you know? And if we're clogging our organs of reception with all of this noise and chatter and, you know, Twitter and Instagram and scrolling and the news and, you know, messages on six different apps and people being able to access you from all parts of the world and, you know, there's so much that we have to work against right now in order to access that stillness. So having some kind of practice that allows you to be still, whether that's simply walking outside in nature or meditating or doing ritual magic or having an alchemical practice or creating art, just something to slow things down where you can set a boundary and say, you know what, I'm going to go I'm going to put my phone down and I'm going to go outside and I'm just going to put my feet on the earth and just be, you know, I think that's really the key and everything in our culture right now in this world is working against that. Sure so is. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of discipline just to be able to say, I'm putting this thing down. I don't need access to all the information in the world at every single moment of my day you know people don't need access to me at every single moment of my day you know to be able to set boundaries for that space 
You know, um, there there is a we have a guest. I believe he's coming on Dreamland soon, uh, called Richard Sclove, who has written an incredibly powerful book called Escaping Maya's Palace. And of course, folks, for the those of you who don't know what Maya's Palace is, in the the greatest single esoteric document ever created is the Mahabharata, uh, the great document of, 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 of Indian literature that, uh, and in it, the Maya's palace is essentially, it's the ego. It's the palace of ego. And the whole Mahabharata is about what it is how ego works, and uh, what um, uh, basically how to escape it. And what he's done is he's modernized this and brought it into our le level of reality and life. So, but, and that's all very well and good, but uh, there is in alchemy a much more practical methodology of finding one's own true self and this has to do with these transformations when you go beyond albedo when you are you have tasted the piece of albedo you then move on into uh citrinitas solar inspiration we're going to have a guy on this show soon, uh, probably in the fall, later in the fall, who's got an, uh, made some wild discoveries about the consciousness of stars. And uh, I would like you to talk about solar inspiration now, if you will. Well, in the Hermetic um, cosmology, the sun is essentially the highest of all the planets. It's you know, saying planets as the traditional seven planets, um, the sun and moon being included in those. So the sun is that which dispenses light and it, through its rays, we receive the divine light of the source. So the sun is sort of like a mediator between us and that source light. And so through these rays of our star that everything in our solar system is revolving around, we receive these divine emanations from the source. And so also if we think about the sun um, in the esoteric anatomy of the body, in the Hindu tradition, the sun is at the crown chakra. And in the same way, we're receiving those divine emanations through that crown chakra, those cosmic effluences, you know, coming down through the crown where the thousand petaled lotus sits. And um, the sun is also sometimes depicted within the heart and so I like to think of that as not contradictory, but that we, we do have a sun within us, within the heart. And that's where we can radiate out that light of the divine. Um, but we receive it through the crown. And so that's what I think about with solar inspiration. And in alchemy, the citrinitas is sort of a transitionary stage between the albedo, the whitening of the albedo and this lunar work, very watery lunar work of um, purification and um, inspiration and um, 
inner work. Um, the Citrinitas transitions us into the final stage, which is the reddening, the rubedo. But in the Citrinitas, the yellowing, uh, we're receiving solar inspiration. So inspiration from the divine and also the illumination of the conscious mind and the ability to um, direct the conscious mind into the unconscious, into the deep layers of the self and illuminate the darkness and to be able to make sense of it. And this is the part where we get into integration and understanding and um, you know, processes like coagulation where um, water might be evaporated from a substance and then it congeals into a more solid form. So we're kind of extracting the emotionality, extracting this fluid wateriness that we encountered in the albedo and allowing things to solidify and to take on a more fixed aspect, um, a more structured aspect within our being. And so, yeah, I think of this as both an integration and also a maturation process. So another process, for example, would be digestion, uh, which is traditionally done um, with a vessel encased in dung because dung provides a very steady, consistent heat for um, this digestion to take place over a long period of time without it going too fast or too slow and without it burning or over consuming itself or whatever. Um, so digestion, like gestation in the womb, it's a process that requires a certain amount of time to unfold. And also, you know, a relinquishing of control of that process and just allowing it to unfold in its own time. And yeah. Before we go on in the third half hour, we're going to be talking uh, about, uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah. In the third half hour, we're going to be talking about rubedo and uh, things like projecting the astral body and opening the doors to the imaginal realm. But right now, I want to circle back into the darkness again, but in a new way, uh, because it, it, let's, let's talk about uh, alchemy, demonism, and demonism in pursuit of the great work, because we need to, we need to understand this remarkable statement of Anne's about the using basically working in the light and the dark. And there are things like uh, Heisman's view of Satan, which are about working with the dark side. And I know you know a lot about this. I, I sense that you do because I've seen it in your paintings. But I'm, I, I, I think in your uh, nonverbal area, you know a lot about it. I'm not sure that you can bring it into the verbal part, but you're so expertly verbal in this, I have a feeling I'll be surprised. So when we are dealing with this darkness that is within us, uh, or, or, you know, we look at something like um, uh, Stuck's painting, Sin, which is basically a painting of a woman and this tremendous conflict between feminism, the feminine and the masculine in uh, the symbolist artists of that period of the early 19th, early 20th century. How do we find our way in this darkness? 
First of all, we have to be willing to look at it. That's the know. perfect answer, of course. <laughs> because the natural tendency uh, is to project it outwards, to say, yeah. you know, to look at the world around us and the people around us and say, oh, well, that person is selfish and those people are um, narrow-minded and that person is greedy, you know, to, to see all these negative things in the world around us and in other people and to be satisfied with that, you know, and that's the narrative. There's evil in the world and I'm on the good side, you know, that's the natural tendency. But when you start to self-reflect and you start to kind of consider things in a deeper way, it's, you also start to ask yourself like, well, aren't I greedy? You know, aren't I selfish? Aren't I narrow-minded? Um, and you can start to see how you are in certain ways, you know? And so there's a process of accepting these negative qualities within yourself or the darkness within yourself. And I think there's even more like deeper, more primal layers of evil within the self. And um, that it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's these powerful forces within us, but we need to be able to um, have some semblance of control over them. We don't want them to take over so that we're doing evil things in the world, right? But at the same time, we need to acknowledge them and accept them and integrate them. And that just takes a lot of self-reflective work. And, you know, for me, working with dreams is one way that I really get in touch with those parts of myself because those um, kind of deeper evil tendencies or animalistic instinctual parts of myself tend to express themselves in dream imagery. Um, and so when those come up, I can sort of start to look at them in a symbolic way and understand how they relate to maybe unconscious behaviors that I'm engaging in, in my waking life. Um, and I talk about all this in a very psychological way because my early introduction to alchemy was through Carl Jung, but um, I don't see all of this as just happening in the limited conception of the mind that we have in, in this day and age. The mind being the, um, you know, the animated essence of everything that is, that everything is connected through this divine mind and that it's bigger than just what's within our, our little egoic personality. Um, so anyway, I think the first step is really just being willing to look at these parts of ourselves and accept that we all have um, negative, dark compulsions within us. And it's not about denying them and projecting them outwards. It's about accepting them and integrating them and giving them a positive, useful role in our existence. Well, it is doable also. It's very doable in, in, in the real world of your inner life. Uh, you've mentioned working with dreams a number of times. And this is very valuable material because people are asking themselves, yes, look at it, but then what, how do I work with it? What do I do? I see these things in myself. I see my darkness. 
Now what? And the answer comes in working with dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I've been writing down my dreams since I was 16. So I've got just loads and loads of journals of dreams. Um, but I've over the years, it's been just the most valuable practice because it allows me to, you know, have this ongoing storyline that isn't related to my daily life, but that's really meaningful for my daily life. And I've had many different types of recurring dreams where I can see um, a process unfolding over years and the way that the dream changes uh, reflects changes in my waking life, you know? Um, so there's a lot of value I find to simply just recording your dreams and observing what's happening in them, even beyond trying to interpret them, like just having an awareness of them. But then when you get into interpretation, it can get really interesting. And, you know, it's, I think the real work comes in when you start to engage with your dreams, where you maybe interpret a dream, you get a general sense of what it means and a general message from it of like something that you should be doing or changing or thinking about or something, you know, for you to act on. And then you integrate it into your daily life and you bring it into your waking world, your conscious reality. Um, and dreams can reveal things about ourselves that we're not able to see with the waking mind, with the solar consciousness. Because uh, yeah. yeah, when you say the solar consciousness, that means that's the part of us that's sort of in the light of conscious of of awareness. Yeah, yeah. And the other yeah. one, the other part of it is what called called what? Like the lunar. The lunar consciousness. Lunar yeah, the lunar consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in psychological terms, the conscious and unconscious. And right. so, yeah, the symbols tend to be very strange, you know, very surreal, very hard to decipher and understand, um, yes. ridiculous even, or terrifying. And it can be so strange that we just don't even want to deal with it, you know? Or have you could, ever, ever painted any of them uh, from your own painting? I bet you have. I thought you might have painted yeah. quite Yeah, yeah. Usually um, there'll be like a prominent symbol from a dream and then I'll it'll evolve um, over time as I kind of unpack what the symbol means and what the dream means. And then the dream or the painting itself will be more of like a synthesis of my understanding than a direct representation of the dream. Do you sell prints as well as paintings? I do, yeah. Most of my paintings are available as prints. Oh, wow. Well, I'm definitely going to get some, some of those because I want them in this house. Oh, um, I wish I could afford the paintings, actually, but um, I'm, unfortunately, people always think of Whitley Strieber, a big liar. He made a lot of money. But when you tell the truth, you generally don't make a lot of money, and that's exactly <laughs> where I am. But I get along. I'm, I'm, not, I'm very grateful for what I have in my life and in the, in what I've been given in the world. One of the visitors early on said to me, you're the luckiest of the lucky, and I thought, is this insane? Is an individual completely insane? It turned out to be true. And uh, uh, being where I am is, I'm so grateful. 
And I'm so grateful to have you on this show too, because it's a chance for all of us to learn something from, frankly, and I don't embarrass you, but from a master. Uh, she said a number of things over the course of this conversation, which are <laughs> indications of the ease of what I call the ease of mastery, which Anne also had when I was asking about uh, the, the how we deal with the, the, the hurly-burly and negativity of life all around us. There were two words, she said, Seven said, slow down exactly right exactly right and then when i was we were deep in in the dark and looking at the dark within us i i, I ex, ex, facing the darkness and she I said what do we do with this darkness within us and her answer was simple three words look at it those are very very important concepts and i want to leave you with them those on the free side and we're going to go now for for the other for the those on the subscriber side into the spiritual quality of words the ricetto and the marriage of the philosopher's stone and we're going to go into just touch on some of the practical aspects of how these inner movements become something very very real. So free dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. Visit Marlena Seven Bremner on the internet. And I strongly advise you to get some of this art and these books into your life, because there's not many people who come along like this. This is a truly unique experience. And the second I saw her first book, I thought, my God, how incredible. And so I'm so glad you're here. And, um, uh, Free Dream Lambs, we'll see you next week and thank you for being with us. Okay, seven, let's go on now and get into then this is this is very advanced material, folks, and don't jump into it. We're touching on it to give you an idea of what is possible. And because there's a great deal that's really possible. Alchemy is a real thing. It's a real thing. And I live it uh, to an extent in so far as I can clank along without blowing myself up, uh, so, which I would never have a lab because there's no question. If I'd had a, I talked to Anne about building an alchemical lab and she listened to this and she said, Whitley, if you do that, in order to live, I'm going to have to move out. <laughs> said, well, what do you mean? She said, because it'll explode. Everything like that that you try explodes. And that was true enough. Of course, I was as a child, I was a, a great bomb maker and played all kinds of pranks and stuff with things. Okay, but let's now go on. Uh, can you talk about the next step? About, uh, uh, did I say Ricciato again? I, I always say that Rubedo. I don't know why I do that, but. Sometimes I get nervous when I'm, this is, you can't imagine, I think, folks, how complex this is in here to do this show right. It's not easy. And I'm talking to a, someone who really knows their stuff. And, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a beginner by comparison. So, okay. Let's 
talk about rubedo. What is rubedo? Well, rubedo, which means reddening, is the final stage of the alchemical opus, the great work. And it's so it's about completion and the final refinement of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and the Philosopher's Stone is actually present throughout the work. Um, it's sort of talked about as though it's being created or discovered um, or generated, you know, at the end of the work, but it's with us the whole time. And it comes from that darkness in the beginning of the work. And as we go through these various stages of refinement and discovery and purification and integration, that stone um, becomes more and more refined and more and more perfected. And so the rubedo is where it reaches its final perfection. And there's processes like um, fixation where the stone becomes impervious to fire, becomes completely fixed and indestructible. Um, and that's really about the union of these two sides of ourselves, the union of the male and the female, the union of the active and the passive, the solar and the lunar, um, the outer and the inner, the above and the below, and bringing them to a place where they are completely unified within us. And from that, this third thing is born. And this third thing is sometimes referred to as the divine androgen who contains both of these opposites within one body or the divine hermaphrodite or the royal child born of the marriage of the king and the queen. And this royal child has a very mercurial quality relating to the god Mercury or Hermes, um, who is the divine hermaphrodite who contains the opposites within himself or themselves and um, who is able to exist in this sort of fluid ebb and flow between the opposites where neither one is dominant, but they're able to interact um, as needed, you know, because we need both sides of ourselves. We need to be able to move between these different states of being, um, activity and rest, um, intellect and intuition or rationality and irrationality, waking and sleeping. We need both sides. Um, and so the rubedo is about reaching that place within us where we have that realization and we're able to exist within both of these worlds. And so waking world then can take on a more surreal dreamy quality where everything is sort of interpreted symbolically, you know, everything that's happening, all the people in our life are seen as um, aspects of the self, but not just the little egoic self, the greater self, you know, our connection with the source, with the divine. And um, through that, we can generate more compassion for other people. And so, so there's this sort of heart opening that happens with the Rubedo. Um, and it's, you know, at the heart of alchemy is love, you know, and love is that force that creates that union of the opposites. And at the same time, that love that's flowing through the heart, which is that, you know, solar light flowing out of the heart or Venusian light, Venus also relates to the heart chakra. Um, that's what allows us to connect with the outer world in a way that it's no longer separate from us. We become unified, the inner and the outer become unified. And 
Yeah, maybe you have more questions that'll guide me. Well, I, I have a, a comment here because of uh, um, you, this, this is about what you're talking about is compassion, essentially. And the, this is the, if we are going to enter the light, we must find compassion inside ourselves for ourselves and others. And I asked Anne that question of about compassion and her answer which my listeners probably know most of them but it's always important at a time like this to bring it back to mind I said to Anne what is compassion how because it's such a strange word really I'd even looked up the etymology of the word trying to understand what it is and she said simply this she didn't answer directly she said each of us is all we have. And when you look at the, any other person or at yourself in that light, that this is all they have, this is what they have in the world, completely changes everything. Suddenly that's a human being there. That's a, that is not just a dog. It is a dog with a life and an inner light of some kind. It is, a, it is a fly annoying you, but at the same time, trying to be. And I think you're, you're talking about this. And this, let's, let's talk now, let's go move to the philosopher's stone, because this discussion of the heart and of compassion is really also a discussion of the philosopher's stone. What is the Philosopher's Stone? Well, the Philosopher's Stone has been described in many ways over the centuries. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a panacea, an all healing panacea, um, and, you know, a substance that bestows immortality. Um, it's also described as a red powder of projection that can be used to transmute base metals into noble metals like lead into gold um, or to you know create as much gold as you want with the philosopher's stone through the process of multiplication um, so there's a lot of different mystical attributions given to this idea of the philosopher's stone and i've known a couple different alchemists that have claimed to have created it or found it um, and I don't discount that, but I think there's a much deeper truth to what the Philosopher's Stone is. And while there may be a physical, you know, reflection of that um, in some material, that the truth of it is more important, the deeper truth. And that is the realization of immortality within us. Um, exactly the getting in touch with that immortal essence within us that dispels the fear of death and that fills us with compassion for all things that allows us to see the life and the consciousness in all things and um also the power of transmutation of our reality you know to be able to understand how 
the imagination, the refined imagination, which is another way that I think of the Philosopher's Stone, um, can be used to create wonderful transmutations, miracles even, in the world around us, in our own lives or in the world, um, if applied um, correctly, you know? When you say miracles, what do you mean? Well, everything comes to be through the imagination. That's sort of a quote I can't remember at this particular moment who said that. I think it's in the first chapter of the book, but everything comes to be through the imagination. Um, and actually, I think it's in the Corpus Hermeticum. But this idea that the creator, the source, God, goddess, deity, whatever you want to call it, um, the imagination was the first part of the creative process for the, that source energy. And everything exists in this imaginal world, as Henry Corbin called it, and or the imaginal realm. And if we look at the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus that talks about the miracles of the one thing, um, this imaginal fluid realm that we live in is capable of profound transmutations. And it's through the directed, refined, and spiritualized imagination that um, we're able to affect really great changes within this imaginal fluid. Um, so yeah, miracles of the one thing, as it says in the Emerald Tablet. Um, the the worst, one of the most disempowering things of this that accompanies this appalling journey that we've taken into ego in our world is the idea that it is just the imagination. Oh, that was just his imagination. That word just, the disempowering of the imagination and with it, the denial of the imaginal. What is the imaginal? The imaginal is, I mean, everything. How interesting that you would <laughs> say that. We see it as this other realm, and, and I may even be guilty of talking about it in that way, but I think it's really everything that is exists in this imaginal realm, and there are layers to it, you know? And so it, our consensus, waking, conscious reality, that is just the most fixed aspect of it but it's still transmutable you know it just takes maybe longer than say like imagining something and watching it transmute into different shapes in our mind you know this material universe that we're in is also capable of these transmutations just as much as we're able to imagine things um transforming very fluidly um in our imagination the um the author Bernardo Castrup, the author of the idea of the world, would love that answer <laughs> because it is exactly right. It is everything. We just don't think of it that way. We think of it as something outside of us somehow or something immaterial mm -hmm. when in fact this is the imaginal realm. We're yeah. in it. Yeah, and I think that's the great <laughs> illusion, you know, you're talking about Maya. Um, right. That it's just matter, you know, and that there's a difference between matter and spirit. 
and that there's the spiritual realm and the material realm. And it's helpful, you know, in some respects to think about it in that way, but also very, um, very much an illusion because you can't have matter without spirit. Like they're integrated together. And so there's different levels of density of that matter and of energy um, between different, you know, levels of experience or levels of reality, but um, it's all one. And that's what the hermetic alchemical teachings really point to is that union, that unity of all things. You know, insight into this comes from Albert Einstein, who said that uh, matter is energy slowed down and learning to dance along that continuum of vibration is a big part of alchemy, which gets me to the astral body and projecting the astral body. What is the astral body in your estimation? And then later we can go into projecting it, but what is the astral body? The astral body is like our spiritual double. You know, it's a um, etheric likeness of us, but it exists on um, a subtle level. And we're capable of projecting that outside of the physical body to travel and have experiences um, outside of ourselves. And it's also the part of us that receives the effluences of the divine. So it comes to us through that subtle body first, and then it sort of um, filters into the physical body through the nervous system and through the glandular system, and then, you know, affects our, our whole, um, our whole being from there through hormones and, um, through the nervous system. Um, we are our chemistry in in a way. The, the brain is a, an electrical device floating in a bath and in a chemical bath. And of course, alchemy is about that, that higher chemistry. And, you know, if you look up alchemy and on the internet, one of the things that happens is that all kinds of chemistry websites show up. And the reason is that the people behind these websites are using, uh, the technique, the uh, techniques of um, uh, uh, internet related techniques about which I know nothing, but thank God I do have people in my world who do know that cause their stuff to show up because they are quote unquote against alchemy. They don't, I, I was once on a TV show with a scientist and when I mentioned alchemy, he snickered. Because to them, alchemy is a is what we did with chemicals before we knew what chemistry was. But uh, it actually, alchemy is what we did with the soul before we forgot how. <laughs> it's a different thing entirely. Yeah. So, what about projecting the astral body? I have a very interesting some interesting material in the book about that. Yeah, I think my focus in the book is around creating through the imaginal realm, which is a form of astral projection, but it's not um, necessarily, you know, projecting yourself to another time or place, um, which is, you know, one thing that you could potentially do with the astral body and communicate with, you know, 
people from other times and places, but um, creating in the imaginal realm is very much just a process of visualization and entering um, the imagination with the intent of creating something, an experience or something that you'd like to receive. And on a very basic level, we can do this, you know, for things that, you know, we want on a material level. You know, we could play around with it and kind of experience what it's like to receive something that you generated through the imagination. But there's much greater potential for how we can use um, this ability to create an imaginal realm. And essentially the technique is to, to still your mind, to maybe lay down in a relaxed position and to make sure there's nothing that's gonna disturb you. Um, maybe use earplugs or um, um, you know, an eye cover, some, everything that'll help you to just disconnect from your day-to-day -day world. And you decide what it is that you want to experience or feel or receive or see unfold. Um, it can be done for another person, you know, if say you've got a friend who um, needs a job, they really need a job, maybe you just imagine them very clearly telling you that they got a job and how happy they are. And you can just feel how happy that makes you feel and just rest in those feelings of joy that you feel for your friend receiving what they wanted. Um, or you can do it for yourself, you know, maybe you've been struggling with, um, you know, maybe you've been struggling with depression, right? And just feeling heaviness and um, lethargy and not feeling excited about life. You could go into the imagination and maybe starting with remembering a time that you felt differently, that you felt excited about something or engaged with life um, and alive and generate those feelings within yourself until you're flooded with them. And that's the general technique. So you could do it with, you know, receiving uh, a material object that you need for your well-being or for your life. And just imagine what it would feel like to have it. And as we refine the imagination, the philosopher's stone through the alchemical work, we kind of filter out all of the unnecessary stuff, you know, the stuff that we think we want that's like um, really not that important, but that maybe satisfies some egoic desire or need. And we get closer and closer to, you know, creating things, wanting to create things or experiences that are going to not just benefit us individually, but that are going to somehow benefit the world around us as well. And I think that's really what I wanted to emphasize in that final chapter on the Rubedo is um, this creating in the imaginal realm is not just a materialistic uh, realization of the spiritual powers of the imagination, but if used properly and if you go through the stages of the work, then it can be this divine union with the creative power of the cosmos um, and divinely inspired, you know, so that we're actually making big changes in the world around us. This could become incredibly important in the near future because the planet is being overwhelmed by basically a, 
uh, an ego-driven civilization that's gone, become terminally addicted to material. And we're going to have to figure out the only way out of that, it's not to do with the material world. That will fail if that's all we try. But as the next few years pass, we're going to have to, all of us who are working in this, in this level are going to have to come together to try to help the planet find its way and help the society that is failing the planet to rebalance itself in such a way that it supports the planet. We've been given this planet, we're its stewards and we must restore our stewardship folks or we're gonna sink. And this is all about the transform, trans, uh, the transition between Pisces and Aquarius. The water bearer now pours out the water. The little fish of Pisces has been swimming around in the water. Everything it needs has been given to it. We're the little fish of Pisces and the water is the earth and everything we need, the earth gives us. Now, however, the water is being poured out. That is to say, the womb of earth is breaking and the waters of that womb are pouring out and we're going to follow. What do we do then when we no longer have the earth protecting us? We are outside of our mother and we need to turn back to her and embrace her in a new way. What do we do, Seven? Well... In that sense, we're kind of going to be like infants, right? Yes. And we're going to be dependent on the mother for everything until still. we get to our own power. So we're still dependent, even though that water has broken and we're out of the womb, right? But we're still, yeah, we're still going to be absolutely dependent on earth. But if, if she dies in childbirth, then so do we. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. So those of us at the at, at, at many different levels, it's not just alchemy. It's not just the uh, things like uh, Buddhism, uh, meditative work or the Rajiv work. And so all of us need to find a way to actually help the planet because otherwise we're going to die with with her. So. It's a tremendous challenge, and I'm not asking you to give us three words that will that will answer that challenge. I wouldn't do that to anyone, although I'm tempted. And I, I do want to know what first comes to your mind when I ask that question. Mm. Well, when I think of the age of Aquarius and the things that are happening already that are kind of I don't know, like AI um, and this whole business with the aliens and the hearing that we all are aware of that happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think we're entering a very surreal time and perhaps we're already beginning to see the albedo unfolding because thinking about the potentials for AI, the dangers of AI and the potentials for contact with extraterrestrials and what that means and what they even are. Um, 
you know, all of that opens up this whole world of possibilities and activates the imagination and can be really inspiring and also really frightening. And so I think the key to all of this is to stay grounded and to get in touch with what's eternal, what's enduring, you know, because the earth beneath our feet, that's real, that's enduring, that's solid. Um, just the basics, you know, staying in touch with nature, respecting nature, respecting all life, um, not being so reliant on technology and this instant gratification that we have through technology. Um, yeah, spending time with what's really happening within us and around us um, and disconnecting a little bit from um, the thrill and the illusion of what's happening on the screen. Wow. That's, that's a brilliant response. I have to tell you folks, because when she, when you said seven, uh, that these strange things that are happening, the advent of AI and, uh, the apparent appearance of ET and, uh, there are many other things along the same lines. That is the beginning of Albedo unfolding. It's in a wonderful way to end because we've come to the end of the show at a time when she has offered us a, a cogent and spiritually valid glimmer of hope. If we understand what Stephen just said in terms of this is the first beginning of albedo unfolding we see all of these changes in a completely new way so thank you thank you for being with us marlena seven bremner her new book don't miss it and i'm sure you won't the hermetic marriage of art and alchemy it's a big complex book this is not a simple thing it's not like a little paperback of 56 pages that somebody copied off the internet at all. It is, is a real deal. And the paintings have real power. But when you go to the paintings, the last thing I wanna say, still your mind, let your mind be quiet because it's gonna go running. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's this symbol? Forget about it. Just be there. Seven, thank you for being with us as always on Dreamland. Thank you so much, Billy. This is wonderful. Great to be on your show again. Uh, good. It sure is wonderful. That's absolutely true. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>